Broadcast friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. You are tuned into republicbroadcasting.com, sorry, republicbroadcasting.org on this Monday night. So welcome to another week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio. It's great to have you with us tonight. And I am broadcasting to you, of course, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, or should I say perhaps the momentarily sunny climes of Western Japan, as we had a rather torrential downpour just a few minutes ago and uh, almost typhoon-like, almost biblical in its proportions, one might say. And uh, for whatever reason, that actually managed to cut the power for a few minutes. So if I suddenly and violently get wrenched from the airwaves tonight, you'll know what happened and why I have been lost in the digital ether. But uh, but on that note, uh, tonight we have another very interesting broadcast lined up for you. And it's all along the lines of, well, something that I think is uh, probably everyone's favorite subject, and that's free money! Yay! Unfortunately, I have to immediately add the Stalmanesque caveat that we're not talking as about free money in the sense of free pizza, but more along this, the lines of free speech. And we have lined up for you tonight a guest that uh, I know is highly popular. Uh, lots of people have demanded to have him on the program, and I'm delighted to uh, to be able to do that, or I hope I will be. We're going to be talking to Stefan Molyneux, the host of Free Domain Radio at freedomainradio.com. But unfortunately, oh, it sounds like he might be ready to come on the program, so we will bring him up and see if that actually works. We've been having some connection issues, but we'll see if it's okay. Uh, Stefan, are you there? I sure am. How are you doing? Excellent. I'm doing very well. I'm doing even better now that you have graced us with your telephonic presence from all the way in the frigid climes of northern Canada. So why don't you tell us, uh, for the listeners, the one or two listeners in the audience who may not have heard of you before, just give the, uh, the brief 30-second rundown of who you are and what, you, what it is you do. Well, as you said, my name is Stefan Molyneux. I'm the host of Free Domain Radio, which is the largest, most popular and longest-winded, longest-running philosophy show on the web at freedomainradio.com. And um, I try to take a rational, principled, consistent, from the ground-up, reasonable analysis of world events, of ethics, of relationships, of all those kinds of good things. I'm down with the property rights principle. I'm down with voluntarism or the idea that we should not initiate force in the pursuit of human virtue and goodness in society. And that's led me to some rather <laughs> surprising conclusions, which I guess is the whole point of philosophy. If it was obvious, we wouldn't need philosophy. Like if chocolate was good for you and broccoli was bad for you, we wouldn't need nutrition. So that's uh, really what I'm all about, trying to make the world a better place one person at a time. We've had, I guess, almost 40 million downloads uh, uh, so far. I'll be speaking at a variety of places across the U.S. at Freedom Fest and Libertopia and Portrest over the summer. So if any listeners are around, I hope that they will come out. Well, I can accept you being the longest-running philosophy podcast, but I I have dibs on longest uh, long-winded, so um, so that uh, you oh, can't. Okay, okay. so yourself. what's your number of shows, my friend? Uh. Oh, oh, we're gonna get into counting. Well, uh, how about how many hours? Maybe we can add up that. No, let's uh, let's not get into that. Uh, for those who don't know, we had a, a rather lengthy conversation on CorbettReport.com last month that you were good enough to put up the video on your YouTube site, uh, going into all sorts of things about free society and. Very interesting discussion, and uh, I note from some of the comments on the YouTube video that you posted that some people seem to think we were having a debate in in a certain sense. Uh, I, I would just like to clarify that I'm not a statist, and I 
was not arguing from that position. So let's get that out on the record. And uh, we will continue, I think, our discussion and expanding on some of the topics we were talking about last time. But tonight, as I say, I want to get into the topic of money, of course, central to all of our lives and uh, something that is so central that we often don't even bother to think about it. But we're definitely going to plumb the depths tonight and get into some of the, uh, the ideas for freeing our money, so to speak, from the, uh, the system that is enslaving all of us right now. On that note, we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back with Stefan Molyneux, freedomainradio.com, right after these messages. Podcast friends, we are here tonight on Corbett Report Radio talking to none other than the one, the only, the Stefan Molyneux of the free domain radio.com. There's a few too many does in there, but uh, just take them out and you'll be fine. Uh, Stefan, let's get straight in into tonight's uh, topic because there's so much to talk about. Let's just roll in our sleeves and uh, start getting our, our hands dirty. Roll up our sleeves, I should say. So, so let's start talking about this issue of money in a free society by first talking about where we are right now and uh, how, how we're going to get to where we want to be. And I think we, we have to start every philosophical problem by really defining that problem and agreeing on, on where it is we stand and what the problem really is. So let's hear in your own words, what, what is the problem of the system that we're living in right now? Stefan, are you there? Are you still with us? Oh. Yes, sorry. Um, oh, okay. Well, money is everything. <laughs> money is... Um... Uh, sorry, I'm muted. <laughs> Amateur idiot, sorry. So uh, money is everything. Money is the universal medium of exchange for everything that we do. Money is the most powerful economic factor that is conceivable. It's more powerful than energy or transportation or education because money is the one transaction that all other tra- transactions rely on. I mean, outside of sort of simple barter and so on. And it's because of the pervasiveness and the massive, overwhelming influence of money that whenever you have major problems in an economic system, the first place, the very first place that you need to look is to the money supply. What is going wrong with the money supply? Now, what is going wrong with the money supply in the modern world is very well understood. It's very clear. It's very uh, obvious. And it's been well-researched for many, many years, but very few people talk about it, which is the fact that money traditionally has always been something that is hard to get. <laughs> I mean, that's why things like gold and, you know, seashells or whatever it is that people salt, whatever it is that people have used for currency, it has to be something that is hard to get. Nobody has used rocks as currency as far as I have ever been uh, made aware of. And why does it have to be hard to get? Because if you have too much money relative to your goods, then it drives inflation. And inflation is incredibly destructive to the economy because inflation says that people really enforces the the reality that people have no idea how much things are going to cost tomorrow or the day after or the day after that. And they get paranoid. They get (laughs) defensive. They make weird decisions with their money. Not weird in the state of inflation, but weird in the state of, of a normal economy. And there's been literally hundreds of documented examples of what is called fiat currency. Fiat currency is just money that's created out of nothing. It's not based on gold or diamonds or seashells or, 
you know, Justin Bieber's teeth or whatever it is that people would use for currency. Uh, it's just created out of nothing. It's a printing press. And throughout history, the free market has demanded a commodity-based or a limited supply of money, money that can't just be created out of nothing. And politicians and bureaucrats and, and the people in power have always demanded fiat currency because they can print it. And when they print the money, they get the full value of that money. And then as it trickles out into the economy, uh, people get pillaged through inflation. And particularly the poor and those on fixed incomes get hit the hardest and the worst. And so this fight over the control of money really is the fight over the control of human liberty, of predictability, of wealth. The wealth that breeds human liberty and human progress. And so when people talk about the economy or helping the poor or health care or whatever it is that's going on, uh, in their world, if they haven't studied money, if they don't understand money, if they don't understand this battle between the free market demanding limited money and the political powers demanding unlimited money that benefits them at the expense of everyone else, well, they don't... Like, look at the issue of war. The issue of war is central to money. I mean, why has there not been a strong anti-war movement in the U.S.? Because the money that is being used to pay for the war is just being printed. I mean, the amount of money that's being printed has gone up by two-thirds in the last few years alone. This is why everything is costing more. Gas, uh, everything is going up. Groceries and everything. I mean, gas, if, if priced in gold, gas has never been cheaper. It's only in this ridiculous fiat currency system that, that it seems to be getting more expensive. So this battle between a limited supply of money relative to the goods and services, a predictable and stable price, uh, and the massive inflation that we see under government fiat currencies... Um, is, is ancient, and if you sort of compare where we are now, where prices are going up double digits a year, compare that to the 19th century, where for about 100 years, prices declined because you had a gold-backed money supply. People don't remember it. Then nobody's alive. <laughs> who, who can remember any of this stuff? But this fundamental battle is, is the great unwritten battle of our lifetimes. Until we understand it, I really genuinely believe things are just going to keep getting worse and worse. Well, I couldn't agree more with you that the actual history of the struggle for the control of the monetary supply has really been the, the driving history, the, the suppressed history behind so much of the politics that uh, that really come out as kind of a superstructure built upon that infrastructure. And, uh, and of course, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, empire that's uh, waging wars of aggression around the world really can just print the money for its wars because it has enjoyed the privilege of the petrodollar paradigm whereby the U.S. literally just exports dollars around the world and can actually do that. But uh, as that paradigm starts to falter and the U.S. falters as a world reserve currency, I think we're going to see a lot more Americans paying much more attention to this, uh, this issue. And that's why I think it's important to open up this debate beforehand, before it gets to that point, so we understand what the problems is, are and how best to counter them. But just on one note of clarification, uh, when you're talking about the fiat currency and the money being printed out of thin air and not backed by anything, I was making that point uh, earlier last year to Paul Grignon, the, the maker of uh, the Money as Debt series of films, and he pointed out that, that in a very real sense, when we're talking about this uh, this money that is created on the back of, of loans, literally created out of nothing by the banks on the back of loans, it's not in the sense that it's created out of nothing, it's pulled out of a hat. It's really created on the basis of someone's pledging to, to put their blood, sweat, and tears into however X many years of work in order to pay back that loan is what is actually backing up the money that is being created at that moment. And what do you think about that paradigm, looking at it not as something that's not backed by anything, but in fact is actually backed by our own labor? 
No, that's that's a very good point. That's a very good point. I'm seeing if I, I'm trying to see if I can rescue my earlier paradigm. I'm not sure that I can because I think what what he's arguing, what you're arguing, is a, is a great point. And what what it is, if I understand it correctly, is to say, well, look, if the money was created out of nothing, it would be worth nothing. I mean, I could create stiff bucks with my printer, and nobody would really give me much of anything for them. Uh, so why is it that this money is worth something? Well, because, as you say, the the money is going to be paid off by by the future, by the future labor of people, many of whom, of course, aren't even born yet. And I think that's an accurate way of putting it. So basically, the money is backed by theft. And so it's not backed by nothing. It's backed by evil. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when when um, uh, when Obama goes to China to borrow a uh, billion dollars or a trillion dollars, I guess, who cares about a B anymore? We got to, We're in the tours now. When he goes to borrow a trillion, the Chinese give him the trillion um, because he has taxpayers he can take from, uh, and the, the government is going to continue to take from those taxpayers through the threat of forced jail imprisonment. Uh, and, and that's, yeah, you're right. It's, it's the productivity of the future slaves. It's like a farmer will only get a loan to expand his chicken coops if his chicken are producing eggs and will continue to produce eggs in the future. And so, yeah, it is the productivity of the tax livestock that is the collateral for the loans. So uh, it's, it's well, backed so, by nothing so- other than violence. Exactly right. And and so what Paul Grignon makes of that, the way he fleshes that out, especially in Money is Debt 3, which is the third part of that documentary series, which I think not a lot of people have, have really watched, but it's absolutely fascinating. I don't know. it. I'm not, I, I think, up there on, uh, to, in, able to follow all of the, the twists and turns of his argument. But ultimately, what he comes out with is a paradigm that goes beyond the greenbacker commodity-based currency debate into a third way that, that's really a self-issued uh, credit that, uh, system, whereby everyone is issuing their own money, but it, and it is backed up by their promise of future labor, labor and it's uh, put into this type of market system that determines the value of that labor. It's quite a complex system, but it's one that not a lot of people have picked up on, unfortunately. Well, I think it's like everything where the government has a monopoly, you fail to see the flourishing of alternatives. And as alternatives fade away from the government monopoly because you can't compete with free and enforced, so to speak, then people say, well, only the government can provide this because there's nobody else who's providing it. It's like, no, 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 there's nobody else providing it because the government is providing it and generally enforcing uh, enforcing a monopoly and enforcing away any competitors. I mean, I think that the issue of, of how money works in the absence of state coercion is a fascinating one, and I've done a little bit of work on it myself. But, I mean, there's no way that any individual or group of individuals can recreate the combined genius of millions of entrepreneurs striving over many decades or hundreds of years to provide optimum solutions. You can guess, I think, we can guess at what money should look like. How it actually will look, I think, is going to be fairly unimaginable. I do believe that in the long run, it's probably not best to have money commodity-based at all. I think commodity-based was based upon what was available in history. There were no bitcoins, (laughs) you know, in the ancient Roman Empire. And so I think that having a currency that is really, really tied to the actual productivity, to the availability of goods and services in the marketplace would be great. Because, I mean, you had a gold-based currency in the 16th century or 17th century when, uh, you know, Queen Isabella sent the conquistadors over to the New World and they pillaged the Incans and the Mayans for hundreds of tons of gold, which caused massive inflation, destroyed the Spanish economy literally for 400 years. They were in a, a recession. Uh, and that was a gold-based economy. So you still are going to have major fluctuations. Lord help us if we have a gold-based economy and they discover boulders of gold on Mars. Well, exactly. I mean, I, that's always been part of my problem with the, the gold is money paradigm that 
we're basing an entire economy on the vagaries of what can be mined out of the ground, and all of the things associated with that just seems kind of ludicrous, especially when we do, as you say, have technological alternatives that uh, that we could start thinking about. I think the gold standard is sort of like a leaky rowboat in the ocean when all you're doing is hanging on to a, a, a sort of drip, a, a wet log. The, the leaky ocean, <laughs> the, leaky, the leaky rowboat looks fantastic relative to the wet log where the, the Federal Reserve sharks are circling. Once you get into that, you're like, hey, that's fantastic. But it's not Good the point. same as a cruise ship. Good point. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Stefan Molyneux, FreedomainRadio.com. Back friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight, as always, from the palatial home recording studios of Corbett Report here in the sunny climes of Western Japan. Thank you once again for tuning in tonight. If you are just tuning in tonight, we're talking to the one, the only, Stefan Molyneux, FreeDomainRadio.com, and we have a lot to talk about as we're starting to talk about money in a free society and uh, free money, but not in the sense you're thinking. But uh, but on that note, we are going to be uh, taking calls and uh, email comments and even your tweets. If you should happen to have one, you can uh, tweet me at, at Corbett Report, and I will try to get to your questions on air. And on that note, we already have one caller waiting on the line, so anyone else who wants to get in, 1-800-313-9443. But let's go to Jim in Missouri, who's waiting patiently on the line. Jim, thanks for calling, on, calling in tonight. Hey, guys. How are you? Can you hear Not me? Not bad. I'm great. I'm yep. great. How you doing? Hey, Stefan. Um, you know, all right, we've got to face the fact, at least here in the United States, that they they took our money away from us in the 30s, and they re- replaced it with this fiat um, system that we're currently under. And I agree with you, Stefan. I mean, uh, there's a guy out there right now, his name's Charlie Miller, and he's pursuing this, but there's only two real assets in this world. We have natural resources, and we have our labor that transforms those natural resources into products that can be used in the market. Okay? I don't know if you agree with that or not. I do. But Yeah, there's stuff and there's people. I, I think that's a, that's a succinct way of putting it, yeah. Okay, but this whole system is based on our labor, and I believe that I own my body, and I believe that I own my labor. That's my property. And for a monetary system to take my labor and to go out and fractionalize and profit off of my labor and then want to tax me on top of it, um, it, it creates a system of involuntary servitude. I mean, in the United States and probably most of the, what we, what we, what, what they call a civilized world, you can't even go get a job Unless you're gonna you're gonna be willing to pay the mafia thirty percent up front, or you're not gonna get the job. 
That's involuntary yes. servitude. Yes. Now, you know, I, there, there, may be, there may be ways for us to create a monetary system that is not based off of, that is not commodity-based. I know that back in old world England, um, would they have the tally sticks? Right, right. Okay, now there's a system that, you know, I mean, that basically it did not use, it wasn't commodity-based. I'm not sure exactly how they did it, but, um, you know, I, I do, the, the system as it is right now is totally flawed, and I'm not sure how it's going to be corrected, but, you know, what else? What else do we have to go back to than to a commodity-based system? Because the commodity-based system really wasn't that bad. Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, relative to what we have now, it was it was a lot better. Uh, right. And the, the countries that have had those commodity-based systems, along with free trade, right, just having a commodity-based system is not that great. But, you know, the, the problem is, is why, the way that I see it is that democracy, which is considered to be the pinnacle of statism, and I go with Churchill here, which says, you know, democracy is the worst form of government that there ever was, except for all, the, all of the others that have been tried from time to time. And uh, I agree with that. It is the best of a bad barrel. And the problem with democracy is that to get into power, you have to promise people more than you're taking from them. That's the illusion. That's the delusion that democracy lives on. And this is, it was as evident in ancient Greece and ancient Rome as it is now. How does well, someone I... get elected? They get elected because people are willing to pay their campaign costs. They're willing to right. donate. And they're willing, they want to get back more than they're putting in. Well, where does the politician get back more than what is being put in? That's the why democracies always have a drive to fiat currency. They print this stuff up, they hand it back to people and enslave their children. It is a wretched, vile, and disgusting system in the long run. And unfortunately, we're reaching the end point of that uh, these days. No, and I agree with that. And uh, but uh, you know, I I think that our founders were very well aware. In fact, uh, I think most of them, uh, when when there was any speak, is, um, you know, anything spoke about democracy, they were totally against democracy. And now we're getting it shoved down our throats that we are a democracy. How did that happen? Uh, there's a lot of questions out there. There's a lot of researchers out there. We think we've pretty well got it figured out. But it's the powers that be that just don't want to, they, they don't want to succumb to it yet. I don't know where it's going to end, but, um, this, I know that this country and the, the, the United States of America is coming down real quick. And, and I think if we come down, I think the vast majority are going to follow real, real swiftly. Well, I, I agree. I, I think that the existing paradigm is definitely reaching the end of its rope, and uh, I'm hoping that it will be a soft landing, but, there's certainly no guarantees. It is really shocking the degree to which people remain ignorant of these basic facts. You know, there's that old saying that people who don't know their history are condemned to repeat it over yeah. and over again. This fiat currency mess. This well, listen, quicksand. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys and, and what you're doing, and, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate the call, Jim. Thank you so much for calling in. And it sounds like you're getting to that uh, question of how we transition and whether an un unattainable uh, half measure is better than an unattainable ideal. So let's uh, take that and keep that in mind for right after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're talking to Stefan Molyneux of FreedomainRadio.com. And just there before the break, we were joined by Jim, who was uh, bringing up the point of, well, a commodity-backed system may not be perfect, but it's certainly better than what we have. So let's use that as the basis for the uh, exploration of a free society and what money would look like in that paradigm. I mean, obviously, we can talk about theoretical abstracts, but the question is always, is it possible? Can we get there? And if not, are half measures as good as, uh, as, as, as anything else, or, or should we actually you know, not be trying for those types of half measures? So, Stefan, I don't know where you want to take it from there, but perhaps we can start along those lines. Well, I think that... The great battles in history are silent. There's no guns, there's no smoke, there are no bombs. The great battles in history are the willed honesty of in- integrity in-, in thought. And there is a dividing line in humanity that people miss for the most part. The dividing line is, is not male-female, it's not color, it's not, it's not the traditional classes, sort of lower, middle, and upper classes. There's really only one dividing line in society. It's those who pay for violence and those who profit from violence. Uh, And that is the only dividing line that matters. And if you look at Wall Street, well, a lot of what they do profits from violence. There are some corporations who act honestly and with integrity and and struggle to do business under ever-changing and and ever-increasingly difficult circumstances. There are poor people who work well. Uh, There are rich people who profit from state power. Uh, But that's the dividing line down the middle of society. The people who are forced to pay uh, and the people who profit from that violence. And until we uncover that big seam, that big crack, that big gash down the heart of society, we're not going to be able to solve the problem. We're certainly not going to be able to get the majority of people who profit from state violence to advocate for an end to that violence. I mean, there are a few people out there, for sure. I mean, I remember seeing an interview with the Koch brothers, uh, one of the Koch brothers, uh, who was... um, who was saying that they wish there weren't all these tariffs and they wish there weren't all these agricultural subsidies, but this is the environment they have to live in. I mean, that's at least a step forward. I'll profit from it, but I'll call it by what it is, which is destructive and uh, inhumane. But until that clarity comes, you know, there are people who profit from the government's forced monopoly on currency and the the banning of, of all alternatives. There are people who profit from that and there are people who pay for that. Until we're willing to sit across from the table from the people who profit from it, and say intellectually, ideologically, this is immoral, this is evil, no more. I can understand that you profited from it when you did not understand it, but the ethics of it are very clear now. The end game, the end result of it is very clear now. So you all better step back from the weapons you praise. Otherwise, if we can't win the intellectual battle, there is a much grimmer battle that comes afterwards. Well, that's a, that's a very astute observation, especially because... So much of this obviously does come down to the fundamental core principles of uh, the right to private property and the non-aggression principle. And if people don't have an understanding of those those principles and what they mean, how can we expect them to have an understanding of anything that's built on top of those systems? So I, I think there is, to a certain extent, certainly more so in America than in many other polities around the world, an understanding of the importance of private property although that, I think, is being eroded. But uh, on the non-aggression principle, obviously, I think we have a very, very long way to go on that point. Perhaps you can speak to that. Yeah, just before we get to that, though, I mean, I think that you don't, if you don't own money, if you don't have choice in money, then you don't own anything. Because everything that you have, the value of it can be eroded through inflation. Or it can be raised or lowered artificially, because, of course, with control of money come control of interest rates. 
Interest rates is the price of money, of course, uh, over time. And because the government controls money, they have to go into debt. Because they are so enmeshed in debt, they have to control interest rates. Uh, interest rates, of course, control the value of just about everything you have. It's the value of your car when you buy it, if you're not going to buy it with cash. Uh, it's the value of your house, assuming you haven't paid for it in cash. So the, the value of everything you have fluctuates according to the whims of other people. And the worth of everything you have declines over time. You don't own anything, fundamentally, if you don't have control over the, of the money that you use. So I think property rights are entirely the shadow cast by a free market in money. If there's no free market in money, everything else that you have is slowly being socialized by the acidic fog of inflation and the wild oscillations of interest rates. Uh, you know, people thought they owned houses. They thought they owned houses up until about 2007, 2008. Oh, turns out they didn't own them because the economy changed, because of what the government was doing. So I think it's really important to understand that where there is no private property in money, where there is no free market in money, there is no private or free market in just about everything else that you can look at. And that's something that's not very well understood. The non-aggression principle is very simple. I mean, nobody's going to tell you what kind of money you can use. Nobody's going to tell you how you can use money or if you want to use money or you want to trade in badger nipples, that's completely up to you. But the non-aggression principle simply demands one thing. The issuing of currency and the selling of the service called money is not a violent action. It is not the initiation of force. It is not theft in a free market. And therefore, it is nobody's business but yours what kind of money you want to use, if you want to use it or not. Uh, and so the monopoly of currency is one of the most violent actions that there is in the world because it, it really is the degree to which all other violent actions are the shadow cast by the central violent action called the control of money. Let me give you a tiny example, right? Uh, so the welfare state was, is impossible without fiat currency because if you say, well, we're going to help the poor and you tax everyone up the yin-yang, uh, and then you give, I think it's only 10 or 15% of the money that the government takes for the poor, actually gets to the poor. The rest, of course, is soaked up in the endless barrels of bureaucracy that it has to slop its way through. And so uh, if, you, if you can't print money to, to pay for all these programs, these programs are revealed as ridiculously inefficient about three minutes after they're started. And so the, 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 the rise of the welfare state has caused catastrophic changes in the American family. I mean, when you've got the huge rise of single... Uh, parenthood, a single momhood, which has hugely negative effects. You've got massive rises in, in divorce. I mean, of course, women feel more comfortable having divorce because there's a safety net. And, um, and so there's huge problems in society that have risen from this. I mean, uh, single momhood is associated with vastly increased criminality, lower, uh, lower uh, academic scores, higher dropout rates, earlier sexual promiscuity, drug addiction, and, you know, just higher incidence, not everyone, but higher incidences of these kinds of things. So there's one, just one tiny example where the monopoly of money allows for the creation of the welfare state. The welfare state erodes the family, producing massive amounts of social problems, which in turn result in an increased demand for government services and, quote, protections and, and, and safety nets and so on. And so this is the kind of um, horrible avalanche of statism that is set in effect when the government gains control of the central lever and mechanism of human productivity and survival, which is, which is trade and currency. So um, until we can look at the violence, the violence that surrounds currency, I don't really think we can deal with any of the other problems that is, is caused by that. 
Excellent points. And unfortunately, we live in a, a, a climate in which even attempting to bring up issues like that and connect those dots in that way would, uh, would, people would attempt to portray that as uh, somehow, you know, against single moms and your, your anti-woman or whatever the, uh, the ridiculous, uh, types of arguments that people would come up with. But absolutely, I think it's important to understand the, the ripple effects that really happen from these types of core fundamental issues, um, to all aspects of our society and our daily life. But on that note, we have another caller on the line. We have Lark in Texas. So, Lark, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, hello, James. Stefan, how are you, gentlemen? Excellent. Great. How you doing? Well, interesting discussion. As usual, any time I hear either one of you even speak. So uh, I'm delighted to be on air with you all just for a moment. Um, Stefan and James, this uh, observation and a question and your response, of course, uh, I hold that you don't have to be a religionist to hold to the biblical conception of the golden rule. And I agree with you entirely that property is central to everything that an individualist, a person who loves liberty and freedom, holds dear. But do you agree that it is actually the golden rule, particularly the Christian conception of the golden rule, which is under the heaviest assault and has been for a very long time because if this is erased from all memory, if you will, then you create the perfect, uh, shall we say, neo-feudal, technological, or technocratic slave society. Do you mean by the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? I think it has to be the basis for any kind of value-based, moral, ethical system that actually values uh, human rights. And I actually think it's uh, this conception of uh, uh, eupraxophy, which is the basis of secular humanism, which is seeking to destroy uh, this so-called biblical conception, which, of course, I hold does not... And you have to be a religionist to hold to that. Right. Well, I'll give you to the, I love the topic of ethics, so James will have to shoot me with a tranquilizer dart when, <laughs> when it's time for him to speak. So, but I, I will now. really, really try and keep this brief. Yeah, please, and, and aim well. Uh, I'll really try and keep this brief. The, the golden rule is, is, I think it's a great uh, tool of empathy to really sort of understand how somebody else is going to feel when you act in a certain way. Philosophically, it doesn't have the rigor that is necessary for a system of ethics. I'll give you sort of one example. So, uh, the, the saying, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, let's say that you're, you know, the, the biggest and strongest guy in the Stone Age tribe. You just, you've got arms like a biker's legs or something. You're a big, big, strong guy. And you say, I'm willing to submit myself to the universal rule called might makes right. Why? Because you're the mightiest guy in the tribe. And so you're willing to do unto others. Others can try, like the, the rule might makes right. You're willing to subject yourself to that as a universal rule because you're the strongest guy. Or the prettiest guy will say that the prettiest guy should, should win. And he's willing to subject other people. He'll do unto others and all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's problems with all of this. Bill Clinton, you know, that silver-tongued, <laughs> dewy-eyed, bubble-magic devil, uh, he would be very happy to have eloquence and charisma be the rule that everybody should, should, should submit themselves to as how society should get organized. It doesn't quite have the rigor, because there are people who are willing to subject themselves to rules based upon personal abilities that they claim will be you know, universal rules and they have an advantage for. 
So I think it's not quite, quite enough for a system of ethics. I do agree with you that the loss of the Christian approach to ethics, which I think really started in, in the 60s in a very fundamental way, but the loss of the Christian approach to ethics without a, a, a very, very strong brain-sweating effort on the part of secularists who come up with a rational system of morality has created, I mean, the void that always ends up when, you, when a system of morality collapses without a substitution. You end up with crappy pragmatism and utilitarianism and, you know, this nonsense called the greatest good for the greatest number as if that could even be defined, let alone achieved. And so I think we are swimming in a soup of, of moral nihilism at the moment that is extremely dangerous. And when moral rules and moral principles go out the window and aren't replaced by anything, then people end up just doing whatever they feel like and justifying it with some vague appeal to universal nonsense uh, after the fact. But uh, I don't believe that we could really have gotten into the mess that we've gotten into if people weren't just going for short-term gratification. Like, oh, I care about the poor, so let's have a government program, and, and now I feel better about the poor. Well, that's not a moral approach. That's just wanting to feel better because you don't like the fact that there are poor people. That's not a principled approach. And the lack of principles, I think, is, de is really decaying. I mean, Christian ethics have a big problem because if you think, I'm not saying you, but if one thinks that Christian ethics uh, are the, um, the pinnacle of moral achievement, then when the Christian church had the most power, society should have been the best. Uh, and, of course, if you look at the Dark Age and the Middle Ages when the power of the church was at its height, uh, society was not doing very well. And so even just from an empirical standpoint, I think you can say that the greatest significant progress in, in society, sustainable progress in, in society where you went from middle-aged living standards to early modern standards was the 19th century. And that was when the power of the church was declining, the rise of free markets, and certain secular values was arising. That proved to be unsustainable. Uh, I think the ruling classes in uh, the First and Second World War just detonated the progress, and almost all the wealth of the 19th century was destroyed in the First World War. And uh, so from that standpoint, the ruling classes, they really like the productivity that rational ethics provides, and they really like the wealth that it generates because they can tax it. But they don't like the next step, which is a rational system of morality completely destroys any ethical justification for a ruling class. The ruling class doesn't like that. They want us to be economically productive, but not rationally moral. Okay, I felt James's uh, <laughs> arrow in my jugular. Okay, interesting points. I have my own take on it. But Lark, do you have anything else you'd like to add to that? Well, I would uh, only add that uh, I appreciate your comments, but I entirely disagree. And uh, it would be fun to expound upon this at some point into the future, perhaps. I want to say that I think that uh, democracy is unworkable, and, uh, and uh, I think probably, too, the money power today, uh, since the time of the Club of Rome, at least, uh, 64, they think think so as well, which is why we have this new communitarian system coming into be, where government is actually dismantled, and it's replaced by a kind of a decentralized uh, surveillance state, and uh, uh, shall we say a system of uh, socialist governance, uh, as opposed to what we knew with nation states as government and so forth and so on. But I actually think democracy, in fact, I wholeheartedly disagree with Winston Churchill's comment. I think democracy, even the Freemasons that founded this uh, this uh, thing called the United States of America, 
I think they knew with people like uh, Alexander Fraser Tyler, for instance, in his book Cycle of Democracy in uh, 1791, that democracy is the worst form of government, short of absolute despotism. But uh, I don't want to... Uh, take up any more of your time just to say that I, I very definitely appreciate the uh, the conversation on RBN. All right. Thank you, Lark. Thank you for calling in. Lots of things to think about, lots of different pieces to pick up from that puzzle. And, uh, and Stefan, I think I, I agree with you that do unto others uh, can't be the, the philosophical end-all and be-all of the, the moral rule for the construction of an ethical system, because uh, as you say, there are lots of ways in which we can imagine there are problems with that. But uh, but for myself, being the uh, the weak, scrawny little nerd that uh, people on YouTube uh, seem to believe that I am at any rate, I uh, I tend to take that uh, do unto others as an injunction against the use of force because I don't want people to use force against me. So so I understand it from that perspective. But of course, as you point out, everyone will have their own interpretation. At any rate, that's why I always come back to the non-aggression principle and the non-initiation of the use of force as the the fundamental building block for a basic uh, ethical system. And I assume that you would agree with me on that, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. No, no. I mean, I've got a free book on my website called Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics, where I basically run through the argument that if we take the assumption that there must be universally preferable behavior, it doesn't mean everybody does prefer it, but it is universally preferred, uh, then uh, the only way that you can actually have a rationally consistent Universally preferable behavior is property rights and a ban on the initiation of force. Well, there you go. It, it tends to come back to that time and again. Well, at any rate, uh, lots of diversions, lots of different things to think about. So we will uh, try to wrap things up in a conclusive way when we come back right after this. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. Here we are in the closing minutes of tonight's Monday night edition of the broadcast. So once again, thank you for tuning in this evening as we've been talking to Stefan Molyneux of freedomainradio.com in a pretty wide-ranging conversation. And uh, we've been talking broadly about money, but of course that always uh, brings up so many other issues and there are so many different ways to take this. That perhaps the best way, instead of trying to wrap up a conversation like this and tie it in a bow for everyone, is to expand it out even further. So uh, why not d dip into the mailbag? I actually had an email from a listener who uh, proposed a question for tonight's interview. So why don't I just put this uh, question to you, and we'll, we'll deal with it here in the last few minutes, Stefan. Uh, this is also from Stefan, a different Stefan. Uh, he, he writes, I would like to know <laughs> how the whole... <laughs> Maybe it isn't. I don't know. You might have How is it, it that this Stefan guy you have on is so smart and sexy? Old head. Just like mine. Yeah. All right. Uh, I would like to know how the whole concept of corporations would work in an anarchic society. Will there be corporations? If so, what form will they take? If not, how will big businesses and projects be organized? There will be no state around to grant them special rights, etc. What would happen to the now existing corporations and the people who own them now? Whew. Okay, lots of stuff to pick up from there. So anything you'd like to tackle? Uh, corporations, uh, as they currently exist, I can guarantee you would not exist in a free society. 
And you can simple, there's a simple principle to remember when dealing with, state, with the state. The state represents what people do not want. The state represents what people do not want. People say the state rep represents the will of the majority. There's nothing could be further from the truth. Because if you have a gun to someone's head, you know that they don't want it. It's a difference between lovemaking and rape. Rape is the knife to the throat. You know the woman doesn't want to have sex with the guy because he's got a knife to her throat. And so you know that corporations are not what people, the consumers, the general population want because they're not there voluntarily. They're there by state edict. And so this is a very, very important thing to remember, that the state does not represent the will of the people. We know that the government does not want, uh, sorry, that the people do not want a welfare state because it has to be enforced. We know people do not want public education in the form that it's in because it has to be enforced. We know that people don't want to give their kids two months off to forget everything over the summer and start from scratch in the fall because the government has to enforce it. And so the corporations simply won't exist. And we know that because in the past, when corporates, uh, corporations did not try, provide legal immunity, legal immunity for um, financial malfeasance, right? I mean, if, if uh, we see this with the banks, the banks uh, fraudulently uh, repossessed a bunch of homes and, and fraudulently pushed through a whole bunch of uh, mortgage applications and lied and, and cheated and so on. And what's happened? Has anyone gone to jail? No, because the jails are full of 3,000 Occupy Wall Street protests and zero bank executives. What happens is the corporations pay this money. Corporations don't exist. Who pays the money? Well, employees pay the money because they get fewer raises or some of them lose their jobs. Customers play, play, um, pay the money because they get increased fees. The people who actually profited at the top from these uh, frauds, uh, they get to keep all that money. And that's what the corporation is for. In the past, you used to be able to go after the houses and personal property of the people at the top of these corporations who are actually responsible for these decisions. And now, with corporations and the way that it works now, almost it's almost impossible, virtually impossible. And that's not how it would work in a free society. And when it wasn't like that in our society, people were a lot more careful with what they did at the time. Absolutely right. Well, a fascinating topic. We could do an entire hour just on that alone, let alone all the other topics we've covered tonight. So much stuff. So obviously we will have to have you back on the program in the future. But in the meantime, just throw out your uh, website one more time for people who are interested in taking a look. Sure, it's uh, freedomainradio.com, and thanks again, James, uh, anytime. It's always a pleasure, and really kudos to the quality of your listeners. Just excellent, excellent comments tonight. Excellent, and let me, uh, let me add my kudos to your kudos. Absolutely, thank you all for listening, and thank you all for your insightful comments and emails and calls and all of that. Uh, once again, thank you for tuning in tonight, and I look forward to doing it again with you all 23 hours from now. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care.